The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement, which is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement. Off the Shelf gives a voice to commercial service and product companies selling in the federal market. Roger speaks to members and government officials about procurement policy trends, innovations, and debates. Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio 1500 AM. Now your host, Roger Waldron. Today my guest on Off the Shelf is Jason Workmaster. Jason is counsel with the law firm of Covington LLP. Um, And Jason is a longtime regular guest on the show talking about key government contracts issues from a contractor perspective in particular. Uh, Jason, welcome to the show. Uh, Thank you very much, Roger. It's good to be here. I'm, uh, as always, looking forward to our our conversation. And, Me too. Um, you know, and one of the things I'm going to start with, because I keep asking everybody what the Palantir decision means. Now it's been oh, a little bit more than a couple of weeks since the decision was issued. And, um, you know, the implications for commercial item contracting and the government's mm-hmm. obligations. And just, you know, since you're you're someone who, who litigates, you know, and deals with the government in disputes and bid protests and all that mm-hmm. wonderful stuff. Um, I thought I'd get your take on the case and what does it all mean? Sure. So the bottom line for me from from Palantir is that FASA really means what it says. You know, go way back to 1994, get in our time machine, uh, back to the early Clinton administration uh, when, uh, from a government contracts perspective, the mantra from uh, the early uh, Clinton administration was that government contracting was too complex, too cumbersome, et cetera, et cetera. And we needed to um, update uh, government contracting to take advantage of uh, the commercial marketplace. And that was the, you know, that was the impetus behind FASA. You know, you go back and, and I mean, that's all part of, you know, this larger trend over the last, you know, 50, 60 years. If you look at where R&D money used to be. I mean, the government used to be a huge player in R&D, swamping the commercial marketplace. And of course, now it's flipped, right? completely flipped, right. completely flipped. Uh, and so for the government to, uh, you know, so and there was a recognition of that in the in the early 90s. Uh, and so FASA was passed uh, with the stated goal of, of making commercial item, uh, in, in attracting commercial companies uh, into selling items to the government without all of the burdensome, regulation that folks normally associate with 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 contracting with the government. Uh, and I think it's fair to say over the last uh, 24 years since FASA, there has continued to be within the government a lot of you know, fighting, internal fighting um, over, you know, how how far does that go? Right. How commercial do we want government contracting to be? Uh, and I think this is, you know, it's, and it's rare, very rare that we get court decisions that really you know, get anywhere close to those kind of issues because it's just not normally the thing, kind of thing that's going to get litigated. Uh, but here, you know, FASA had established long ago uh, a preference for commercial. You know, the government acquiring must acquire or make all maximum extent practical acquire commercial items if there are commercial items available to meet their needs, and that's what this 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 case is all about. Yeah, um, it's interesting. So, <clears throat> yeah, I guess you would say you know, FASA is in a certain sense visionary in in just the the view and the reliance on the commercial market because to your point that you know the 
<clears throat> innovation is driven now by the commercial market, yeah. whereas back in the day in the 60s, 70s, and even into the 80s, yeah. it was driven by the government and by DOD in particular. Um, so it's, uh, you know, again, um, let's just talk a little bit about what happened in sure. the case, if you'd like to, um, and and what the government chose to, I guess, ignore. Sure. <laughs> oh. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Uh, so this, so the the procurement at issue here uh, was for the distributed common ground system. It was an army, it was an army procurement, uh, and that was the army's primary system for processing and disseminating multi-sensor intelligence and weather information. Uh, and under FASA, um, the government was required to fully investigate, fully explore, uh, examine, and evaluate whether all or part of its requirements of that requirement could be satisfied by commercially available items, such as Palantir's solutions. Um, and uh, the case, uh, the, the, the government proceeded forward uh, and issued a solicitation that was not a commercial item uh, solicitation. Right, and this is after the Palantir told the government we could do yeah, it. After, after, after the government, and the record was very clear, the government knew that the Palantir solution could either meet the entire need or some part of the need. This, you know, under this under FOSS, it's not necessary that the solution meet everything. It could be a hybrid, but again, it's establishing this this strong preference in favor of not reinventing the wheel. Uh, and so Palantir, you know, made done its marketing to the government, made sure the government knew about what what Palantir had to offer, uh, and the government proceeded anyway uh, in a non commercial direction. Uh, and issued a solicitation, which then uh, Palantir uh, protested, uh, and uh, you know, invoking this provision in FASA uh, to say that the government didn't do its homework uh, in uh, making the determination to proceed in a, a non-commercial direction. Right, and so it went to GAO, went to the Court of Claims, right? Went and, and yep, go and ahead. the government kept fighting, kept, kept and, losing, uh, and kept fighting, and kept right? fighting. And so they so they lose at the Court of Federal Claims. Uh, and then the government <clears throat> takes the issue up uh, to the Court of Appeals for the the Federal Circuit. Uh, so now we're at a court that's you know right below the Supreme Court. Uh, and for in government contracts, in the government contracts context, you know you almost have to think of the Federal Circuit as the Supreme Court. It's very rare, you know, that a government contracts case is going to get beyond the Federal Circuit. They some they sometimes do. I mean, the the Supreme Court does hear them, but it's 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 a rare uh, case. So this is pretty much as high as you're going to get. Uh, it'll be interesting. Actually, it'll be interesting to see because you know, end of this story, the government's going to lose again uh, right. at the federal circuit. It'll be interesting to see if they they try to pursue this any further. Uh, uh, they could, they could try to take it up to the Supreme Court, but it seems unlikely yeah. uh, that this would be the kind of thing they'd want to hear. So, what does it say to the government? Is it? I mean, it, you know, it seems like they ignored, um, you know, the market market research. And one of the things I guess they didn't do is. You know, address that market research and provide yeah. an explanation. Is that, is that that's one of that's the big... ba- that's basically the bottom. That's basically the bottom line. I mean, the 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 court is pretty clear on this. Uh, you know, the administrative. I'm just reading from the the critical portion of the decision. The the record demonstrates that the army, while conducting its market research, was on notice. This is the point we we're talking about before, Roger. On notice, the desirability of hybrid options that use commercial solutions, and that Palantir claimed to have a commercial item that could meet or be modified to meet the need. And then, but, but, they knew all that, yeah. but, you know, the record showed that the Army did not use the results of that research to determine whether there were commercial items that could meet its requirements. And so, without doing that, 
you know, it was a pretty easy conclusion for the court to say that doesn't meet the requirements of FOSTA, that you have to evaluate these things before you can proceed to procure something that's available commercially uh, through non-commercial means. Right. So, you know, and that when just when thinking about it, it's that age-old tension, I guess, or this, in a certain sense, the government was, it appears to be like fundamentally committed to a government unique sort of, sort of approach and solution yep. as opposed to the commercial, a commercial approach. Um, you know, and you're, what you're seeing out there in the market going on right now, the Palantir sort of focuses on that issue, that balance between government unique requirements and, um, and the commercial items sort of preference. Mm-hmm. Where are we? You know, we have this case is pretty big, but at the same time, and you have a lot of talk about yeah. reducing burdens, yeah. access to innovation, you know, and even the idea where OTAs are now yeah. invoked to try yeah. to access commercial technologies that many feel would be otherwise unavailable through the normal process. You know, I, I feel like, you know, we've, and we, we, when I've been on before Roger, we've talked many times about, you know, this pendulum in government contracting between faster, easier, cheaper, more commercial on one end of the spectrum. And then on the other end of the spectrum oversight and concern for fraud about, you know, all that kind compliance. of stuff. compliance, right. all that kind of thing. Uh, you know, and I, I, I think we may, you know, it's it's if you, you look at FASA at the kind of one end of, you know, it's, it's on the end of the pendulum, more commercial. You know, I think it's fair to say during the uh, uh, in the aftermath of the Iraq war, the pendulum swung way far to the compliance end of things. A lot of concern about fraud. You know, maybe, maybe uh, there's a lot s- of money being spent and so there's a lot, lot of follow up, a lot of money, you know, pallets of cash going into a war zone. Right. You know, right. I mean, a very, very unusual circumstance. And, and I, you know, the audit community had a very strong reaction. Right. Um, but understandably back then, yeah. right, it was mission first. We'll worry about the other stuff later. Exactly. Right? But it, so at the back end of that, there was a lot of focus on compliance. I get the sense that we haven't had a conflict like that in a while. Um, and I do get the sense between this decision, you have the work of the 809 panel, which is very interested in, uh, making, uh, uh, commercial item contracting, uh, more, uh, uh, more prominent. You know, there's been a concern for years. I, I can't help, but, you know, in reading this decision, uh, thinking how much Senator McCain would have liked it, yes. uh, you know, because I mean, his mantra for so long uh, on the Senate Armed Services Committee has been we've got as you know our defense depends on being able to bring the innovation of Silicon Valley to the Defense Department, uh, and uh, that's met with limited success right. uh, over the course of time. So I you know I think this is uh, a you know kind of almost a fitting eulogy for Senator McCain. Uh, this is exactly what you know he wanted to see happening, and we've seen that year after you know you and I have talked about. You know, year after year after year in the NDAAs, the National Defense Authorization Act, there's always, you know, something in there where Congress is saying, we like commercial item contracting. And so many times, Roger, you and I are talking about that's what Congress is saying. And the bureaucracy is saying something very different. Right. And on that note, we have to take our first break. My guest today is Jason Workmaster. He's counsel with Covington LLP. And when we come back, we'll continue our conversation, commercial item. In fact, talk about the bureaucracies implementing, uh, I use that in in loving quotes, bureaucracy, (laughs) Um, DODs implementing uh, some provisions from from last year's NDA, I believe, um, in a proposed rule. Um, Again, my guest today is Jason Workmaster, uh, counsel at Covington LLP, and you are listening to Off the Shelf 
on Federal News Radio 1500 AM. Brought to you by CGI, a global leader in IT, business process, and professional services. CGI partners with federal agencies to provide end-to-end solutions for defense, civilian, and intelligence missions in areas such as cybersecurity, cloud, and big data. Experience the commitment at CGI.com slash U.S. Federal. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. Today my guest is Jason Workmaster. He's counsel at Covington LLP, and we're talking about commercial item contracting a bit. We just talked about the Palantir case and what it means for government and industry a little bit, and uh, you know, reemphasizing you know, FASA, Jason, as you so aptly mm-hmm. put it, means what it says, yeah, right? Yeah, um, that's exactly right. And so let's. But uh, when we took the break, um, I know you want to talk about uh, this proposed rule that DoD had there. Out with regard to commercial items and the implementation of some key sort of potential changes for commercial item contracting from the department's perspective. Yeah. So as as you were saying, Roger, you know this is a this is a proposed rule, so it's not final yet. Uh, it was issued over the summer by the Defense Department. It would amend the uh, the DFARS, the Defense Federal Acquisition Regulation Supplement, um, and it uh, the the proposed rule is issued to implement a section from last year's uh, fiscal year 2017 uh, NDAA, uh, and it is a proposed rule to exclude the application of certain laws and regulations to the acquisition of commercial items, including commercially available off-the-shelf or COTS uh, items. Which is a subset of commercial which, items. Which is a subset of commercial items. Um, and, and so what is this, you know, what is this clause, what does this proposed rule do? This proposed rule is identifying... Uh, a number of clauses uh, that are uh, going to, uh, you know, did, did an analysis uh, of uh, lots of clauses that, t- t- at least up till now, have been required to be included in commercial item contracts and then flowed down to commercial uh, subcontractors under those contracts, uh, or you know, clauses that even if it's a not a commercial prime contract, you know, there are there could be a commercial item subcontract under a non-commercial item contract. You know that where these clauses uh, have been required. So it was a review of these clauses to determine, you know, which, you know, ones are going to continue to be flowed down, which ones aren't. You know that those. Uh, um, it's it's fair to say that a lot of I think I think the DoD's position on things like cybersecurity, uh, you know, counterfeit parts. You know, there is still there still remains a lot of concern around issues like that. Uh, those are those are not going anywhere. Um, uh, and again, to that tension we were talking about, you know, before, I mean, there is, you know, yes, we want things to be cheaper, faster, but there is also a consideration, look, this is the United States government to the extent that we're dealing with matters of national security, um, uh, implementing other important government policies. We can't be exactly like the commercial marketplace. Um, that is out for comment. It'll be interesting to see the comments that come back to DOD on DOD's views of which uh, clauses should continue to apply. So, Jason, just to, is this yep. is this is this really about Congress saying, "Hey, look, we it's like regulatory creep over the last That's exactly right. over the last two decades That's when exactly commercial right. items first came into being and where we had a handful of clauses yep. that applied and yep. then we've seen them grow to tens of it, clauses like exactly. some odd. Um so Congress is really saying, hey, wait a second, uh, this isn't what we met at the time. Right, that and it, that's exactly right. And it's giving DOD the chance to pair it back 
on its own. Because you know, as you, to your point, I think when when FASA was pot passed, I think it was something like fifteen clauses or something like that. We're now up, as you say, we're up in dozens of clauses. So it, it's and that that is a concern to Congress. Um, also. Uh, you know, there's concern. There's been this concern among government contractors for a long. Uh, you know, folks in the supply chain that that kind of trickle up to sure. government contractors. How far down the supply chain do all of these requirements reach, and to whom do they reach? Which raises the you know the age old question. We've had this question as long as I've been doing this. You know, clients have been asking. So, what's the difference between a subcontract, a subcontractor, mm-hmm. and a vendor? Or supplier. Or a supplier. Yeah. Because if I'm a subcontractor, then I have to worry about all those nasty provisions. But if I'm just a vendor or supplier, you know, I don't have to worry about getting all these flow downs. Uh, and that's, that, that question has been a very vexed one over the course of time because there's never been a standard definition of what a subcontract is. So this proposed rule, very interesting, does have a standard definition of of subcontract um and it is it 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 uh very interestingly it excludes it excludes agreements entered into by a contractor for the supply of commodities that are intended for use in the performance of multiple contracts so if you have an argument now the term commodities is not defined Funny how that works. All right, so we're going to define subcontract. So we're going to take care of that, but now we're going to use another word that isn't defined. And you know, so I think that's where the action is going to move. The action is going to move to what is or is not a commodity. And you know, I think it's you know fair to say, uh, you know, the easy examples are always the best ones. Uh, uh, Let's start with like paper. Yeah. You know, if you're a warehouser and you're selling paper uh, to a government contractor, chances are very good that that paper is going to be used in the performance of multiple contracts. And there's really not going to be a question that paper is a commodity. Uh, but when you start talking about things like it's, I could start seeing some arguments is, is, you know, you know, at this point as a, as a desktop computer, a commodity, I mean, there's, there's, yeah, there's going to be some, you know, there, yeah. there's, there's, there's going to be some debate around the edges mm-hmm. over what is and is not a, a commodity. Uh, and it's going to be if you're the uh, entity that's selling up the chain, it's going to be in your interest to make the case that what you're selling is a commodity. It's very interesting. I mean, we've always been focused for years and years and years over you know advising whether it's the sub or the prime. How do you make the argument that what you're selling is a commercial item, right? Because if you're it's a commercial item, you're at least going to get less regulation than if it's not. Well, now. It's going to be, well, if you're a commodity, you don't even have to worry about the stuff that applies to commercial items. Wow. Yeah. So it's going to, it's going to change the, the, the discussion going forward. And that's what contractors need to think about or, you know, it's, Con- I know it's a proposed rule, but. It's yeah. a proposed I mean, on, on that contractors one. Contractors and subcontractors. On that one, I think that, you know, the, 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 the definition of subcontract, uh, uh, you know, that was in the, um, uh, that's, that is uh, in the most recent NDAA uh, as well. I mean, this definition is now. Uh, but but that part about commodities, I think that's going to. I I would be very surprised if that's not in the final rule. Uh, and so I do think it's something that contractor is going to need to be thinking about, both at the prime level and at the the sub level, right? Um, to understand the scope of their obligations, yeah, and or what not, needs to be, and right? what needs to be. Flo- and you know, this rule goes on now. You know, we've talked about subcontracts and commodities, et cetera. But it also says that the any contractual instrument that could be used any wait wait wait. 
any contractual instrument. So we're talking about contracts, subcontracts. Now we're talking about contractual instruments that could be used to acquire electronic parts still must include the provisions that we're familiar with that the relate to those, risk, to those supply chain. Yeah. So even so that what, what that's telling us is if, if this rule goes final, you know, if, if it involves electronic parts, it, it doesn't matter whether you could call it a commodity, whether you could call it a subcon, it doesn't matter. As long as it involves electronic parts, that those clauses are going to be required to be in those instruments all down through the supply chain. Right. And you know what, Jason, we're already up on the next break. Uh, all right. When we come back, um, you know, I'm going to ask you this question about the tension um, I think uh, many are seeing between the commercial item and sort of this greater interest in commercial item, but also the the same time you just touched on at this issue of supply chain risk, cyber, and the growing set of government requirements that and and how those two things are not not their their intention i guess yes. is the right yes. way to say it and um and get your thoughts on that my guest today is Jason Workmaster he is counsel with Covington LLP and you are listening to off the shelf on Federal news radio 1500 am welcome back to off the shelf on Federal news radio 1500 am today my guest is Jason Workmaster he's counsel at Covington LLP, and we're talking, we're doing a lot on commercial items today, mm-hmm. Jason, and I guess we're going to continue that conversation. And yeah. uh, when I took the break, I sort of teed it up, but you know, just that this, well, I think we're seeing a lot right now and a lot of conversations just in regular statutes, regulations, whatever concern is, you know, this continuing focus on commercial item, access to innovation, access to commercial marketplace, because yep. it drives, you know, that in private investment is driving technological change the and then on the other side of it is the continuing su- supply chain risk threat the cyber threat and the government trying to address that and mm-hmm. i think part of the solution obviously is innovation from the commercial market to help you know harden you know our systems and capabilities so you want to get that access but at the same time when you're buying stuff there's going to be compliance with government unique supply chain risk risk um, no. you know, uh, matter uh, requirements. Um, your thoughts on that sort of, you know, the competing uh, interests there. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's, it's, I think it's the kind of thing that will never be fully resolved as long as the government's purchasing stuff, uh, which is going to keep doing for a long time. Uh, and it's, you know, it, again, it's just, it's, it's, it's part of that pendulum I was, I was discussing before. And I think when it's, it, when it's issues as important as cyber and, and the government, you know, as I was mentioning before the break, the, the government's continuing interest in ensuring it's not getting counterfeit parts. Um, I don't I don't think those are going to change. Uh, and I just think we're going to continue to kind of, you know, contractors are going to have to kind of live live with the tension. And if you're the prime, I think when you're the prime contractor, it's partic- you're in a particularly uh, difficult spot uh, because one of the things that we've been met, as I was mentioning, you know, in this proposed rule, it's all about, kind of flow down provisions and what you, what you have to flow down, what you, you know, interestingly, this proposed rule, you know, (laughs) uh, would prohibit, prohibit contractors, prime contractors from flowing down FAR DFARS clauses to commercial item subcontractors, unless flow down is specifically required in the FAR of the DFARS. I mean, that's, that, that would, that, that is, that would be very different from what we have. There's no, currently no prohibition Right. On doing that. Now, the rule goes on to say the contractor can, of course, still impose its own requirements 
on subcontractors, but it just cannot flow down the FAR and DFAR clauses as a whole. Unless the specific, unless specifically. it's specifically required. I mean, yeah. I could see that. that the flip that side is, used to be here's the boilerplate, and you just would flow it down to exactly. So and right. and and when you're the when you're the prime contractor and you're trying to reduce the cost of negotiating your subcontracts, that's the easiest thing in the world to do. You just stick every clause in. And you say here they are. Right. But if now it's there's a prohibition on doing that, uh, it's going to require the primes to spend more time or money on negotiating their subcontract agreements. You know, and, a, and an open another open question in this rule: if if it does go final and this this gets uh, you know put into the DFARS, what would be the consequence of violating that prohibition? You know, if you're the prime and you stick in a clause that arguably well, shouldn't be, I mean, yeah. is that a breach of contract? If it is, what's the damages? I mean, right. there's there's all right. kinds of questions that. Could potentially flow from and that. the clause may protect the government's interest in some way. It, Obviously, it wouldn't be there. Right, yeah, right exactly. <laughs> so, um, so um, you know, okay. So now let's let's just you know we we've beaten that stuff to death. I <laughs> yeah. guess but let's talk a little bit about a commercial item. The biggest commercial item contracting program out there is uh, the GSA schedules program, and you know I know, and I'm just going to lay out the 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 two or three different things I'd like you to comment on, and we can go down through them. So. One, the GSAIG just issued a report on transactional data reporting. Uh, number two, we have the rollout of order level materials, and sort of, and then you know, I guess the rights, you know, realignment, the correct alignment for commercial item contracting when they um, put out their commercial supplier agreement rule. Um, so let's start mm-hmm. with TDR. All right, so let's start with T- so TDR. As I'm sure listeners know, the transactional data reporting has now been with us for, what, a year or two? Yeah, uh, a couple of years. Al- yeah. Almost three at this point, I think. Yes. Um, but you know, this is the – TDR is the alternative to the traditional way of you know pricing schedule contracts. You know, the old commercial sales practices format, the price reductions clause. TDR was supposed to eliminate all that. It requires – instead of all that – uh, requires the contractor, the GSA schedule contractor, to submit uh, data on a monthly basis regarding its sales under the contract. Um, Eleven different fields of data they're supposed to be submitted to the to government on a monthly basis. Uh, you know, so uh, just uh, within the last few months, uh, the uh, GSA Office of Inspector General, the OIG, uh, has issued a report. Uh, an audit report on the uh, uh, its review of the TDR pilot program. You remember TDR started with a pilot, uh, and then you know, it was going a to be a three year pilot, right? And, it was going and, to be required for certain schedules, and now it's all voluntary. And there's uh, there's been a lo- lingering question as to you know is it really here for the long haul or not? Uh, you know, currently it's just you know you have your pick if you're a schedule contractor whether you do the traditional CSP or do TDR. Anyway, uh, you know the OIG issues this report, and surprise, surprise. They don't like TDR very much, which, you know, they have not liked TDR uh, from before it was even implemented. Um, and the, the, the report that the OIG has, uh, has issued, um, you know, has, has criticized GSA uh, for not, you know, not being able to objectively measure uh, whether the TDR program is working as it was intended. It lacks specific objectives, performance targets. The data that GSA has collect, had collected was not available for evaluation of the pilot. You know, so there were a number of findings all like that, which were essentially, you know, bottom line was we don't, we're not buying the audit. The IG is not buying the the notion that TDR is saving the government money. 
because they're saying there's not enough objective criteria to make that determination. Well, it seems to me, I you know, looking at the report, there's, it's, um, you know, I, I understand GSA's, you know, quandary or position on this is that, you know, the measure, part of this is a learning exercise. Mm-hmm. And part of it, as part of a learning exercise, you identify what should or shouldn't be measured down the road. Mm-hmm. So that you start with um, a, you know, I guess a less precise set of requirements in terms of how you're measuring and then maybe have those evolve over time makes sense to me. And I don't see any acknowledgement of that sort of thought in there. Yeah. Your thoughts on that? No, I, I, had, I, I had a similar reaction. And, you know, the, the, the FAS responded uh, to the OIG's findings and, and, and large made kind of made the point that you were making, Roger, you know, that, that if you look at a certain level, the objectives of TDR were very clear, eliminate the CSP right. and eliminate the price reductions clause. Those things have been, those, yeah. those things have been achieved. Uh, and to really, you know, uh, it, you know, this is also within, we've been using the word tension a lot uh, here, right. but I think there's, well, even within the schedule program, you know, I think TDR creates a tension with the traditional CSP. Now, the traditional CSP method is all about we're going to rely on data generated in the commercial marketplace to establish pricing. That's the whole point. TDR moves away from that you know, kind of fundamental construct of the schedules program to we're going to look more at just how much is – what are the prices the government itself is paying? You know, yes. which is a very different thing. Yeah. Uh, so I, you know, it's it, and you know, I, in counseling clients on this, we've had clients. Um, you know, again, I'm coming at this from the contractor's perspective, uh, but you know, if you're a contractor out there and you're still assessing TDR versus CSP, I mean, I, that, at a high level, that's one of the things that you need to think about is, you know, which which are you more willing to live with, your commercial pricing or your government pricing? Um, and we, I've had clients that have gone, you know. Some clients have said it's better for me to go CSP, and other clients have said right. it's better to go TDR. Their, yeah, it depends their, on the it depends on the particular client. Yeah, their business model, operations, yeah. all that stuff. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. So, and I just thought of something I'm going to ask you about. So, if that's the case, the IG really not going to like the authority that um, civilian agencies, including GSA, got, and specifically references the schedules program that you, they don't have to have that, that you can establish schedules. Where price for labor hour rate services, where price is not evaluated at the contract level, because that automatically means no PRC, no, no CSP. Is that but it, fair to say? I think that's absolutely fair to say, but it only makes sense. I mean, you and I have been talking for years and years and years and years. When you have, uh, uh, as you do so much in the schedules program, when you have so much competition that is, in fact, you know, in certain instances required, and and regardless of that, in many instances, in fact is taking place at the task order level, you know, this focus on and all this attention and, and, and hand-wringing over setting those schedule prices does not make a lot of sense. It's a lot, uh, a lot of energy and time. A lot of energy yep. and time for, for, for not much because if you go out and compare the prices that are actually being paid by the government versus those schedule prices – you know, especially for certain under services, you know, right. it's requirement driven. It's right. requirement driven, and, and, and they're always being dis- price. and they're always being discounted. Yeah, yeah. So, well, you know what? We already burned that whole se- whole, whole My session goodness. there, Jason. So, I guess for our last segment, when we come back, we'll talk a little bit about order level materials, I guess, and okay, and maybe CSA. That just take a minute on that commercial supplier agreement, and then you can give us a rundown on you know a couple of the key changes. 
in the Civil False Claims Act, what you're seeing sure. in litigation-wise. So we should have enough time to cover all that. Okay. That's ambitious, but we'll see what we can do. All right. My guest today is Jason Workmaster. He's counsel at Covington LLP. And you are listening to Austin Shelf on Federal News Radio 1500 AM. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio 1500 AM. Today, my guest is Jason Workmaster. He's counsel at Covington LLP, and we've been talking. It's a commercial item show, Jason. Yes, it's a it lot is. Of commercial it item sure stuff. Is. So, um, so this segment, let's just tackle real quickly order level materials mm-hmm. and what that is, and the schedules program, the commercial supplier agreement. Just yep. that's realigning yes. their schedules back consistent with the law, yes. frankly, in my view. Yes. Um, let's do that one first, and then I'll give you a chance to talk a little bit about uh, a couple of key developments in Civil False Claims sure. Act. So sure. go, go for CSA first. Real All quick. right. So, so you know, with, with the order-level materials uh, and, and commercial supplier agreements, you know, these are two still relatively new uh, 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 developments in scheduled contracting. You know, you know the OLM rule – uh, is you know that's what we used to affectionately call ODCs. Yes, and, and the FAR does is right now. She <laughs> has to come up with its own name. It does. And I know they've heard that many times. And, you know we've 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 been talking about the ODC issue again, Roger, for as long as I can remember. Uh, us having conversations on the schedules program, and you know, and and the and and the issuance of that rule and bringing some a construct uh, to the schedules program, adding sins that will cover OLMs. Um, you know, as a huge step forward, uh, uh, you know, it, 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 and, and from my perspective and where the clients that I've been, uh, working with, uh, I think it's perceived as such in the, in the contractor community as well. Right. So now that now you, they don't have, you don't have to have every single thing, yes. uh, listed and priced on your contract, you know, for every conceivable outcome, you can add it at the order level. It's a it, great flexibility. It, 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 and especially as you were, you, you know, you, you alluded to this before, but, you know, especially like in the services context where you have, you know, lots of labor categories on your schedule at hourly rates, uh, but then you go to bid on some work at a, a customer agency and, you know, they want a fixed price. And there's, you know, there's a scope of work and it, it's, it's going to include almost always some ancillary stuff. Uh, that, or services, or, or 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 services that you know may or may not be on your schedule, and this and the OLM uh, rule just you know makes it so much easier for both the ordering agent, the customer agency, and the contractor to accomplish to, to meet the government's mission. Right, it's a common sense. It is. Sense it is case. a victory for common sense, and yeah. and I you know and the same thing has happened. You know. Uh, with the commercial supplier agreements, and and again, you know, I don't know why this has to. That's what we always used to affectionately call EULAs, right? Right. So the end user license agreement. Now we're we're calling the commercial supplier agreements. Uh, you know, and the big issue that was percolating on that that is now a final rule. And you know, uh, uh, and for anybody who's who's sold uh, software products to the government, you know, the 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 long pole in the tent. Uh, almost well. There's two long poles. One is the pricing. And the other long pole is negotiating that end user license agreement or commercial supplier agreement. Um, and you know the basis for that when you're a software company, you're going into GSA. Uh, the base is going to be your commercial, your terms commercial, your commercials, yeah. your commercial terms and conditions. And uh, there was GSA had developed uh, over the course of time a list of items that they tip the commonly saw in commercial uh, uh, supplier agreements that they didn't like. 
and that they thought either violated the Anti-Deficiency Act or you know the, the Anti-Deficiency Act, choice of law issues, choice of law issues yeah. or a bunch of things. And so, uh, and and they had been historically negotiating these EULAs on a you know case by case, one by one basis, using this list, uh, just kind of as a matter of practice. Well, uh, when they issued the proposed rule on commercial supplier agreements, um, you know they, they they said, okay, we're gonna we're gonna formalize this, and we're just gonna put it out there. These are the clauses that just aren't gonna work. That with the whole intent, which is very good intent of speeding up negotiation of the commercial supplier agreement. But at the same time, at least in the proposed rule, they said, but to the extent there's a conflict with our standard terms and conditions, our standard terms and conditions are going to win. Right. So they had changed the order of precedence. Yes. Yeah. Uh, But, uh, and that created, I know from the coalition and from others and, you know, outcry from industry uh, that negates the whole point of negotiate, of spending so much time to negotiate the EULA. Uh, and fortunately, in the final in the final rule, uh, they restored the the standard order of precedence, so that you know to the extent there is a conflict between the, the specially negotiated commercial supplier agreement and GSA standard terms and conditions, it'll be the it'll be the specially negotiated terms uh, that will trump. Uh, so that's you know, that was a po- again with OLMs, common sense. OLMs, yeah, absolutely. OLMs and commercial supplier agreements, you know, both victories for common sense. Uh, in ordering uh, off the schedules. Right. Great. So we have about five minutes left. Okay. Jason. So you got a little bit of time to right. let us know Civil False Claims Act. What do we What do we know? Just what to, don't we know that we need to know? Well, just you know, just a couple things. And you know, the the last time uh, I think I was here, uh, you know, we had some discussion about uh, uh, False Claims Act cases. You know, the False Claims Act for listeners who uh, don't know uh, is the government's principal civil fraud tool. Uh, in in fighting uh, uh, fraud, it's not a criminal. You know, we're not talking about the criminal false claims. We're talking about the civil one. It comes with treble damages plus penalties. Can be you know, it's a it's a very powerful statute at the government's disposal. And when it comes to the kind of issues we've been talking about today, the schedules, commercial items, you know, it's been interesting, Roger. The 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 number, you know, this is this is anecdotal. I haven't I haven't done a detailed you know analysis of this, but you know, it certainly seems to me. That the number of false claims act cases involving things like pricing disclosures, price reduction compliance, false CSPs, you know, those are those. Uh, th- there's actually not as many of those. You know, they're not making the news the way they used to. What's making the news out of you know the schedule uh, context is compliance with the Trade Agreements Act. So the Trade Agreements Act uh, clause, which is in all schedules, uh, requires that you to the contractor to provide items. Uh, that are from certain designated countries, uh, and on the list of designated countries is not the People's Republic of China uh, or uh, India or Russia, uh, which you know for larger uh, where, where you know those countries, India, China, Russia, that is where a lot of software development uh, these days is taking place. Uh, and of course, you know, with uh, any, you only need to go to Best Buy to see you know lots of IT hardware is made in China. Well. The TAA pro, uh, prohibits the sale of such uh, items from such countries to the government. Uh, so there has been a spate of uh, false claims act cases over the last decade or so, where a whistleblower, called or called or also known as a key tamerlator, private person, can bring a lawsuit in the name of the United States and has sued lots and lots and lots, mostly IT uh, hardware vendors, uh, for violating the false uh, violating the Trade Agreements Act. 
by selling non-compliant uh, product to the government. There was a recent case out of another uh, circuit court of appeals. We've been talking about the federal circuit before in the Palantir case. Uh, there was a recent decision out of the seventh circuit, which is kind of in the middle of the country, uh, involving uh, Trade Agreements Act uh, compliance. And uh, uh, it, like so many of these cases, almost all of them, is a victory for the contractor. So what we have seen over and over and over again, you know, the takeaway, uh, I think, the development of the law in this space has been over and over and over again, we have seen relators, you know, this was another case, um, like some others, where the, the whistleblower here, it was, he was a competitor of the contractor that he sued. And he didn't have any inside information. He didn't know for sure that they were selling non-compliant product. He just kind of had a, he just guessed. He just guessed. And, and that, the case did not turn out well for him. Right. Well, that's, that's good to hear. Yes. Uh, from a, from a compliance perspective, again, so that sounds like a common sense decision. It, it is a com- that that is the theme of the day. Right? Right, common yeah. or sense at least a segment. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> so, well, Jason, you know, I want to. Uh, you did that in in five minutes. That's great. Fantastic. Perfect. So, uh, I want to thank my guest today, Jason Workmaster. He is counsel at Covington LLP, and you've been listening to Off the Shelf on Fed News Radio, fifteen hundred AM. You've been listening to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement. If you missed any part of this program, you can hear the entire show or any of our weekly programs anytime at federalnewsradio.com. Off the Shelf, only on Federal News Radio 1500 AM and federalnewsradio.com. To be your best every day, You need proven quality sleep every night. Science proves your best sleep is vital to your mental, emotional, and physical health. And that's where the Sleep Number Bed comes in. And let me tell you, ever since I've had it, my Sleep IQ score is just going higher and higher. And did you know 8 out of 10 couples say that one of them sleeps too hot or too cold? Science tells us regulating your sleep temperature leads to higher quality sleep. For many couples... Temperature struggles are a real challenge. So here are some tips to help you both sleep just right. Look for beds designed with temperature benefits such as the new Sleep Number Climate 360 Smart Bed that actively warms and cools each side so you both sleep blissfully comfortable. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number 360 Special Edition Smart Bed. Plus, special financing for a limited time. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com slash podcast one. Sleep Number the official sleep and wellness partner of the National Football League. Subject to credit approval, minimum monthly payments required. See sleepnumber.com for details.